Good evening. Thank you, Claudine. Those of you watching online, that was Claudine. So um, good to good to see all of you tonight. As Dr. Russ mentioned, is a little a little bit abbreviated tonight. Uh, you won't get short chains on Psalm. 118, but we did shorten a few of the things. Um, here in the modern age, uh, and I've, I don't know, I've never seen anything like the struggles we have with calendars in 2023, like um, so much different than 20 years ago. Even tonight, two of our Twans on a business trip out of town, another one of our deacons out of town trip, and um, uh, we struggle sometimes to find time. So tonight we kind of had to call it audible and we'll have some uh, meetings after this, but um, so thank you for uh, accommodating that. But uh, we're going to jump right into uh, in just a moment here. I just want to real quickly remind you that Sunday it is Father's Day, uh, but uh, we'll be finishing Acts chapter two. And I actually think that where we're finishing Acts chapter two is super instructive and helpful for fathers on Father's Day. Uh, everything the apostles did, God wants men to lead in their homes. So we'll, uh, we'll be looking at the finishing verses of Acts chapter 2 and really the, the blueprint and the establishment of the church on Sunday. And then, as I mentioned, through the remainder of the summer, and we do have VBS and we have, uh, we're looking to do one Wednesday somewhere in the summer where maybe we do the Jesus Revolution here. Uh, we actually have it and we'd like to kind of have a night where maybe we did that here and uh, popcorn and stuff like that. But um, uh, until September, though, we will go through uh, some more of the Psalms. So we'll finish up somewhere at the either early part of September, mid part of September, and then we'll be moving into a different study, but just kind of giving you that. And so the next Wednesday, as I mentioned, uh, the longest book in the Bible. It will not be an abbreviated service next Wednesday, uh, nor will we be here for two or three days, but uh, uh, Psalm 119 next Wednesday, and looking forward to kind of showing... Uh, just a composite of, of that uh, chapter of the Bible, and uh, we certainly will uh, dig into it, but uh, not every single verse, of course, but uh, come next Wednesday, and we'll be getting into the longest chapter. So uh, with that, if you have your Bibles in hand, uh, Psalm 118 tonight, and I'm not going to read the entire chapter just for the sake of time, but we'll, we'll go through it. I'm just not going to read it. Uh, at the start here, we'll just read the first few verses and then we'll kind of work our way through as much of it as I can possibly cover in these 29 verses. Uh, but starting in verse 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 4 to start off with. Psalm 118, starting in verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we're here tonight because of your mercy. We're saved because you are a merciful God. Lord, we've sang these songs of worship uh, because, Lord, we so appreciate your mercy and lord we're thankful for your goodness and we're thankful for your loving kindness and lord as we come here tonight this midweek oasis we pray lord that you'd refresh every person that is here those that are watching online that your mercies would be poured out even tonight just as they're new every day we pray they'd be new here 
this evening, even this abbreviated service, Lord, may you magnify it and multiply it as only you can. We thank you for this time, Lord. I ask for your anointing, your help, and your strength. And uh, Lord, speak to each heart, and may every heart be soft and receiving what it is that the Spirit desires to speak through this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So four times, four times in the first four verses are the assuring and soul-strengthening words, His mercy endures forever. Four times. And verse 1, and if you want to look ahead real quick, you can look to verse 29, which is the last verse. They are identical. Uh, identical verses. They're bookend proclamations reminding us to give thanks to the Lord, to remember His goodness, and to anchor our lives to His everlasting mercy. We live in a world that's not merciful these days. Have you noticed? I mean, it's all about revenge. It's all about, if I can nail you to the wall, I will. We don't live in a merciful world. Thankfully, we have a merciful God, because if God should mark iniquities, who could stand? Nobody. But 28 times in this psalm, if you read all 29 verses, 28 times in this psalm, the name of the Lord is mentioned. Another three times, God is mentioned. So a total of 31 times, the Lord God is mentioned, covering both the lunar or Hebrew calendar, which is 29.5 days, and the solar calendar, which is the Gregorian calendar. So 31 covers both of them. But his presence and his mercy, I think it's noteworthy that you have God three times and the Lord 28 times for 31 times. But his presence and his mercy is so needed every single day. Amen? If you're taking notes, you see the title this uh, evening, His Everlasting Mercy. And thank the Lord, it's not only a daily mercy and a great and abundant mercy, but it's an everlasting mercy. And this marvelous mercy is not only for those who have come to the Lord by faith and received salvation and everlasting life. It's not just for the work of salvation. No. We need His mercy in living out that salvation, not just to receive it. And the word mercy, theologically and spiritually speaking, is a rich and a deep word. And that's, of course, an understatement. In the Old Testament, uh, there's three different Hebrew words. I didn't put them up here tonight just for the sake of time to go through them. But there's three different Hebrew words that are rendered as the word mercy. Three different Hebrew words. And the compilation of their definitions include compassion, pity, kindness, faithfulness, and generous. Would you, think, would you say God... Uh, that all those describe God as best you can understand it through the scriptures and in your own life. Compassion, pity, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and generous. These are the opposite of the characteristics of our society increasingly. Uh, is less of these things, more vindictive, more cynical, not generous, greedy, selfish. But a merciful God is all of these and, of course, more in the New Testament, wouldn't you know it, there's three Greek words. In the Old Testament, three Hebrew words. In the New Testament, three Greek words that are rendered as mercy. 
And their combined meaning includes compassion, pity, forgiveness, and lenient, which the Greeks saw as a sign of weakness. So when Christians became merciful, they thought they were weak-minded. Because if you were a Spartan, you didn't get mercy. They viewed, by the way, the Greeks, uh, Paul had to preach about this. They viewed the cross in the same way. You, had a, you have a weak Savior. He died on a cross. You, you need a, a Zeus. You need a, a, a powerful God. Of course, God is all of that. But I can assure you at the end of the day, and more importantly, at the end of the age, at the end of the age, you will absolutely want a merciful God, and you will want the weakness that Jesus poured out on the cross, which was actually strength. Now, the longer I've been saved and the longer I've studied the scriptures, I'm less dogmatic on the, I'm less dogmatic on the difference and there are some differences, but I'm less dogmatic on the differences between mercy and grace, especially in the Old Testament. Frankly, it's, uh, it's difficult, it's, it's really difficult to make a precise distinction between grace and mercy. Now, there are distinctions. The way I kind of think of it is mercy, God bestows on us, and grace flows through us, if you kind of want to look at it that way. Mercy comes upon, God lavishes mercy upon, and his grace flows through us, but that's just kind of one way of looking at it. Um, we, we, we see some differences at times throughout the scripture between grace and mercy, but other times God seems to write them as quite interchangeable. And you'll, you'll notice this sometimes in the scripture. This is because they're so interrelated to God's character. He is a gracious God, but he's also a merciful God. In which both are represented in uh, a composite view of God's heart towards humanity. His mercy is there. His grace is there. Uh, and there's a passage in the Old Testament you've probably heard or read many times. In Exodus chapter 34, I put it up on the screen. And the Lord passed before him, him being Moses, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. You see them side by side there. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty. Merciful and gracious, they always go hand in hand with the Lord. They're ever connected in the ever abundance of the Lord. Uh, but notice, we have to choose the mercy of God because he's not going to clear the guilty. And we'll see that in this psalm as well as we read a little bit further. God gives mercy, but people can reject mercy. We understand that, right? People can reject the mercy of God. They can spurn the grace of God. And if you're here on Sunday, you know that God graciously saved. We were in Acts chapter 2, and like I said, we'll be in Acts chapter 2 to finish that chapter this Sunday. But if you're here on Sunday, uh, you know that God graciously saved those that gladly received the word through Peter, through his preaching, which was a, a message proclaiming the mercy of 
and the grace of God in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, because that's who he presented on Pentecost was Jesus Christ and him crucified. But remember, he said, they had to repent. There was repentance required, turning from sin to the forgiveness of God. And when you turn to the forgiveness of God, yes, he will bestow mercy. And this psalm reflects some of what Peter preached there at Pentecost, as the Messiah is clearly seen throughout Psalm chapter 118, and I'll, I'll make note of that as we go through, where we see these messianic um, pictures of Jesus. And like Psalm chapter 16 that we talked about on Sunday in Psalm 110, uh, Peter quoted, as I mentioned Sunday, he quoted from Psalm 16, he quoted from Psalm 110 when he preached in Pentecost. Uh, several passages here are specifically attributed to Jesus as well. In fact, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 himself. The larger picture of this psalm, of Psalm 118, is that the mercy that we see in these first four verses, the mercy is fulfilled in the Messiah. The mercy is fulfilled in the Messiah, who is none other, other than Jesus Christ. Psalm 118 is kind of like, you know when I was a kid, before we had... Um, I grew up in the 70s as a, as a kid, and then the 80s as middle and high school kid. But as a kid, uh, we had really fun, exciting technology like Etch-A-Sketch and, um, and Mad Libs and dot-to-dots uh, -dots when I was a kid. We had papers with little dots, and when you finally filled it in, oh, there's a star. And you filled it all, oh, I didn't see that coming, or whatever it was. And, and when you fill in dot-to-dots, it's kind of like you do a dot-to-dot -dot in Psalm 118, and the face of Jesus is there when you fill it in. Only people understood that are people that grew up in my time. But uh, you may notice that no author is attributed. If you look at the top of Psalm 118 in your Bibles, uh, most of your Bibles might have a heading like praise to his everlasting mercy, but no author is listed, and you'll oftentimes you will see in some of the Psalms, not all of them, uh, an author is listed, it might say Asaph, or it might say Moses, or it might say David. It only says Moses once, but it might say uh, David often. No author is mentioned uh, or attributed to it, but almost all scholars, and I don't call myself a scholar, but I am someone that studied the word for years now, uh, most all scholars are nearly convinced that this psalm was written by King David just as Psalm 16 was, just as Psalm 110 was, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, all of them being messianic, by the way. But G. Campbell Morgan, who, who like most uh, theologians and scholars, uh, did, does think, or did think, he's no longer with us, but thought that David wrote this psalm, he saw the practical application to David, because David did write it about himself, but also uh, the Messiah. But he saw the unmistakable view of Jesus and the value to his disciples, that being us and many others, who would come after Jesus ascended. And this is what he had to say. He goes, though this was likely David's psalm, it was also Jesus' psalm. This, preeminently, uh, this is preeminently the triumph song of the Christ. He, the ideal servant. He, the perfect priest. He, the leader of the people. He, uh, or how much, all these words meant to him as he sang them on the night in the upper room. And by the way, uh, I, I agree with everything that G. Cam Morgan says here, but a major clue uh, that David 
is the author, so David writing for himself, but also writing about the Messiah to come, the Messiah that he would need to look to, just like every other Old Testament saint would look to. But a real clue that David is, in fact, the author, although not attributed in the actual Psalms themselves. Uh, we see this in Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. It says, When the builders laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Notice that it says, the ordinance of King David. So just a clue here that David himself wrote this. And Ezra seemed to know that, the priests seemed to know that, pretty much everybody seemed to know that at that time that David was the author, and they call this the ordinance of David. Now, under the umbrella, under the umbrella of God's mercy, here in this chapter, is, a, is of course a wealth of other provisions. If you go back to the very first time we started the psalm series, we talked about that the psalms are written uh, for how to really endure the real tough difficult terrain of life. I mean, because life comes at us from so many different directions. And there's also a lot of practical, of course, application here as we find in other psalms. So there's a wealth of other, of other provisions and help that are outlined in this psalm, though it's for David, though it's messianic about Jesus, it's also for us. And we'll take some quick looks at some of those promises and some of those provisions that encourage us and we'll briefly look at some of the messianic mentions uh, that are revealed here in Christ as well. But back to verses 1 uh, through 4, um, where he says, again, three to uh, four times, uh, his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord now say. Now we're going to close with verse 29 which is the same, exact same as verse 1. Verse 1 and verse 29 are the same word for word. Uh, but we've looked at the broad definition at the outset here. We looked at the broad definition of God's mercy. But notice uh, that the Lord and later Jesus will do this as well. Jesus will also do this in coming first to the house of Israel. Amen? Uh, Jesus came first to the house of Israel. This psalm directs itself first to the house of Israel because it says, let Israel now say, let the house of Aaron now say, and then in verse 4, let those who fear the Lord now say. Um, but although the psalm is written first to the house of Israel, although Jesus will come first to the house of Israel, it's equally to anyone that chooses to fear the Lord. Amen? Anyone that chooses to fear the Lord. I'm a Gentile, this is for me. If you're a Gentile, this is for you. If you're Jewish, it's for you. Uh, but this includes Gentiles in the Old Testament like Job and Caleb, who became Jewish, but I mean, he was not born uh, of the lineage of Abraham, but he, he becomes uh, Jewish. Rahab, Ruth, Luke in the New Testament, uh, a couple different Roman centurions in the New Testament, the Ethiopian eunuch in the New Testament, and millions more. So this mercy is extended to the whole world. So let Israel, but also anyone who fears the Lord. Look at verse 5 through 9. I called on the Lord in distress. I called on the Lord in distress, and the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. Verse 6. 
I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in princes. Looking at this, these verses as kind of a group, without kind of going in deep detail with each one, just for the sake of time here tonight, if we're under God's great and everlasting mercy, we can depend on, we can trust in, and have confidence in the mercy of God. You can have confidence in God's mercy. You can't have confidence in anyone else's mercy, but you can have confidence in God's mercy. In all situations, Martin Luther said this, he said, although the entire Psalter and all the Holy Scripture are dear to me as my only comfort and source of life, I fell in love with the psalm especially, therefore I call it my own when emperors and kings and the wise and learned and even the saints could not aid me. This psalm proved a friend and helped me out of many great troubles. As a result, it is dearer to me than all the wealth, honor, and power of the Pope, the Turk, and the emperor. I would be most unwilling to trade this psalm for all of it. Psalm 118. A powerful, a powerful psalm. And when we look at these things, I call to the Lord in my distress. Has anyone ever here, anyone ever been in distress here? Anyone at all? <laughs> ever had a distressful moment? Some of you say, I haven't had anything but distress. Uh, look at my week. Or, uh, but, but the Lord sets us in a broad place, not on a tightrope. A broad place. I mean, you already feel like you're on a tightrope, and he takes you off a tightrope onto a broad place. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. Fear is one of the big, I think, curses on our nation right now like I've never seen before. Fear, anxiousness. I mean, many believers suffer these things too because we're, we're, we're in a fallen world too. David felt them at, at, at times as well. But he remembered that the Lord was at his side. What can man do to me? Only what God allows, amen? Job found that out. And Satan goes, do this, do that. And God says, you can't go farther than this. Job says, you let him go way too far, by the way. You know. But the Lord is for me, verse 7. I love verse 8. It's better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in man. And this, uh, this, says, this, not just, this doesn't just mean people individually. This means all the constructs of man. It's better to trust in the Lord than your HMO, than your 401K, than the FBI. I, don't, I, I won't go down that path. <laughs> Any other three-letter acronym you can think of in America today? Better to trust in the Lord than all of these other things that man has put together, even than princes, of course. A lot of princes, uh, people at the top can't be trusted at all, so uh, you, you definitely want to trust. And that's not always the case, but it is a lot of the case. But verse 10, let's look at verse 10 through 14. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Sounds like a great opportunity, right? You know, uh, God's going to give us that kind of power. Let's look at it a little bit more. Verse 11, uh, they surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. It's not fun to be surrounded by bees. Uh, they were quenched like a fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord... I will destroy them. You pushed me violently 
that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now, David experienced all of these attacks in his life. If you read about the life of David, you'll see that he experienced all kinds. He was double-crossed by his own, some of his own family, Absalom, for example. I mean, David experienced these things from Saul trying to spear him to death. I mean, all kinds of things. David experienced these things in his own life. Uh, and he certainly had some divine victories over his enemies. David saw his enemies crushed at times, and David had killed his you know, tens of thousands. God gave him many victories. Jesus, on the other hand, and when we look at this from a messianic viewpoint, Jesus, on the other hand, fulfills this in a magnified way. He's going to destroy all the enemies from all the nations from all of time. Remember when Peter preached, we talked about this on Sunday, when he stood up to preach from the Psalms, first from the prophet Joel, and then he switched over to David. In Psalm 110, remember, and I put it up on the screen, it says, sit at my right hand till I make your what? Enemies your footstool. Jesus is offering terms of peace to his enemies right now, but if they spurn the mercy, if they spurn the grace, if they spurn the gospel, they will remain his enemies on judgment day, and then they will be put underfoot. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And so this is saying, hey, um, all these have come against me, even to the point in verse 12, says, you push me violently that I might fall. Satan tried to push Jesus into the grave, but Jesus comes up out of it. By the way, I forgot to mention on Sunday, so this is a bonus of coming Wednesday, but um, I forgot to mention on Sunday, but where it says, till I make your enemies your footstool, there's a gap between Jesus sitting on the throne and making all of his enemies his footstool. We're in the till. We're in the age of grace right now. Until Jesus said, he already has won the victory, but the people that have lost don't know they've lost yet. So therefore, they are coming against the saints of God, and they're coming against the church, they're coming against the scriptures, they're coming against God. But once he makes them in footstool, it's too late by them. Everyone that is not in Christ will be judged for all eternity. So we're in the till, until this happens, uh, until the rapture comes, until the tribulation period, until God brings forth at the very end the great white throne judgment. But at the cross and the empty tomb, uh, Jesus defeated all the enemies. It's just they don't know they've been defeated just yet. Verses 15 through 21, moving along. The voice of rejoicing, verse 15, and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The hand of the Lord does valiantly. The, Lord, the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live, and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them. I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. Verse 21, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. Paul would later write, so you look at what he says here in verse 14, uh, verse 15, the voice of rejoicing and salvation in the tents of the righteous. Um, this rejoicing, this praise that we see in verse 19, the praise again in verse 21. 
Uh, but Paul would later write in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice in all situations. First uh, Peter 2.9, Peter would, uh, contemporary of Paul, of course, one of the other apostles, said that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, the righteous, we have a lot to be thankful for, a lot to rejoice in, our salvation. Back to verse 15. We have a salvation that's great. We have a salvation that is complete. We have a salvation that is eternal. We have great reason to be people of rejoicing, not people of grumbling and recoiling and fading. But he goes on to say, I shall not die but declare the works of the Lord. You ever felt like you were going to die? And the Lord gives you a little bit of a nudge, says, you're not going to die from this. Get up and go do what I've called you to do. I've had it many times where I've just felt like, oh, Lord, am I going to even survive this? No, he's called us to declare his works. He even says that the Lord has chastened me severely. The Lord's calling us to praise him in all circumstances with faith and with confidence, even in the chastening. And the chastening never feels good, does it? When the Lord loves, he chastens. It's how he actually has us experience more of the life of Christ because Jesus certainly was sinless, and he went through a lot of trials on our behalf, hated and despised among people, no place to lay his head. Those weren't chastening, but they were the trials. We actually receive chastening because we've actually... We actually, unlike Jesus, have a lot of flaws, and we need to be redirected, recorrected again and again and again. But David said, the Lord has chastened me. The Lord's corrected me many times, but not, not to the point of death that David was able to say, I'm still growing and learning to praise God through it all. Open to me the gates of righteousness. And the more we learn to praise in all circumstances, the more the righteousness of Christ that begins to flow in our lives and kind of crowds out the natural inclinations of our flesh because our flesh is really strong. Can I get an amen on that? That our, that our flesh is very strong and it doesn't want to praise God. And it doesn't want to go through open gates. It wants to sit and pout like a toddler. Verse 22 through 24, rolling along here. This verse ought to sound really familiar to everybody. Verse 22, switching gears. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. This, was, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. The rejected stone was true of others in the Old Testament. David felt this in his own life, but it was true of Jacob for a while was rejected. Moses for a while was rejected. Uh, Joseph, the son of Jacob, for a while was rejected. David, of course, was rejected for a while, but he was glorified, uh, or David saw uh, God choose him even when others didn't. Uh, even Samuel wasn't sure uh, David was the one, but uh, ultimately the Lord said, no, it's, it's this one right here, the youngest one. And Saul, of course, rejected David. But, but other saints in the Old Testament, Moses was rejected by his own people. Who are you to, you know, 
Lord over us, and one by one, they were all put in a place that they were leaders of Israel. They were uh, instrumental in God leading his people out of bondage and leading them in the ways of righteousness. But all of this is glorified in the revelation of Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone. There has been some other stones that God has used. Even Peter's name, Jesus changed it to stone or rock. But Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is the Messiah that the world has rejected. And many millions, in fact billions, are still rejecting him even now. But he's approved by God. This is my son in whom what? I am well pleased, the Lord said. In verse 22, uh, uh, we see that he's become the chief cornerstone. When he, when he first came, no one even knew Jesus was the cornerstone. It wasn't until he had risen from the dead that the, the disciples realized that everything Jesus had ever said uh, was true and that he was and is the rock of our salvation. We're building uh, this church in Calvary Chapel, Richmond, and any other church that's following the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're building on the rock of Christ. Verse 23, this was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our sight. Uh, what is this that the Lord did? It was marvelous. It's the work and the mystery of salvation. It's marvelous in our sight. We can't even, we can define a lot of things about salvation, but would you all agree with me we can't fully define it? We can we can kind of define a lot of the elements of salvation, but there's still things that when we get to heaven, God will explain to us that we never quite could grasp. And we can just say, it's marvelous in our sight. And then verse 24 here, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It is true that this can apply to every single day of your life. So many Bible verses uh, hit multiple targets with one arrow. That's pretty cool about the Bible. It's unique about the Bible, and it certainly can apply to every day. And a lot of scholars do believe, I, I don't agree with them on this one, not that I'm right or they're wrong, but um, a lot of scholars believe that this day was the day Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that triumphant day on the donkey. I, I don't believe it speaks of that day, uh, because the day speaks to a specific day and the day of the fact that God is in control of all days, the day of grace, we could say, the last 2,000 years, everything from the cross would be included in this, the day of the Lord. Um, or this, not the day of the Lord, but this, the day the Lord has made. Uh, but to the specific day, I believe, that speaks specifically to the day of the resurrection. If there's one day that we all rejoice, every church in the world, it is Resurrection Sunday. That's the day that even the disciples who were down and thought they had lost their Savior realized he is risen. And to me, that's what this is speaking of. Because everything else, when he's rejected, he's put on the cross. By the time you get to verse 24, if he's risen, three verses later here, then the day of his resurrection. So that's my personal view. It's, it, it's debated among people which specific day, and I'm in agreement that it applies to every day, and I'm in agreement that it covers the day of grace the last 2,000 years, but I think if it's speaking of one specific day, it's the day of the resurrection. Moving on to kind of uh, finish this out, verses 25 through 28. Save now... I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. 
bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Same exact as you saw back in verse 1. Some have proposed that due to the arrangement of these last uh, few verses, particularly verses 25 through 28, uh, that these particular verses were a chorus in the song. Uh, either way, uh, these words comprise obviously a prayer, verse 22, save now I pray, O Lord, O Lord, pray, send prosperity. It also comprises a praise in verse 25, I will praise you, I will exalt you. Uh, but we see a prayer, we see a praise inside of a song, because we know the entire 118 is in and of itself also a song or a psalm. Uh, but it's also inclusive of this praise and proclamation uh, that you are my God, that God is the Lord, the middle of verse 27. So we see all of these uh, in the same chorus here, if you will. And Jesus, uh, once again, is in clear view as the anointed sacrifice on the altar where it says bind um, it says uh, bind the sacrifice with cords and of course Jesus wasn't bound with cords he was driven with nails but we see the illusion that Jesus was going to be on the uh, a cross just as the lamb was on the altar here and all of these things in verse 25 for example where it says save now O Lord send prosperity uh, this obviously is not saying, send me a Ferrari, or anything like that, or make me uh, really wealthy, or anything like that. Uh, but even after the grace of salvation in, in our prayer life and our talking with the Lord, we pray for the prospering of our salvation. Does that make sense? The prospering of our salvation, the fruitfulness. Jesus said you would bear much fruit. The fruitfulness of, if you had a farm that was prosperous, it would be fruitful. So the fruitfulness is another way of looking at it the prospering of our salvation through the work of discipleship, that we would actually make disciples, that would be fruitful and multiply, but also the work of sanctification, that we're becoming more like the fruit of the Spirit in our life, more loving, more joyful, more kind, more faith, these things. So that's what we're praying for. We're praying, Lord, conform us to the image of Jesus, the fullness of Christ. Uh, which is expressed in the New Testament. And then lastly, uh, verse 26, it says, Blessed is he, I, I've not done them in order, I'm going to look at them at a, as a, a collection here in the whole course. But in verse 26 it says, um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does anyone remember seeing that somewhere in the New Testament? Of course, that was said to Jesus shouting with palm branches as he entered Jerusalem. The people were shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, that Sunday just before the Passover week, Jesus said that this would be said again, if, you, if you're a note taker, uh, when Israel as a nation truly sees him as the Messiah, you can write down Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather me, gather you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when Israel finally realizes that Jesus really was the Messiah, then he would come back and establish the kingdom there in Jerusalem. So he said, you're not going to see me 
again. Not individual people. Lots of individual Jewish people have come to Christ. Messianic Jews, lots of Gentiles have come to Christ. I'm talking about the nation of Israel has to, as a country, as a group of people, they'll have to recognize him as the Messiah. And Jesus says that will happen. And at that time, he will set up his kingdom there in Jerusalem. And then finally, uh, in verse 28, you are my God, I will praise you. Uh, we certainly see Jesus praising his father in his lifetime. Even as uh, we see Jesus giving honor and glory to the father and teaching us uh, to even pray that way. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then all of this brings us back to verse 29, which is the same as verse 1. Um, and it's interwoven with verse 28. 28 and 29, you read them together. Uh, you can't go wrong to live your daily life. Read, if you read 28 and 29 and got up every morning and said, all right, uh, I'm going to praise God, I'm going to extol God, I'm going to give thanks to the Lord for he is good, and I'm going to remember his mercy endures forever, you're going to have the right mind frame, uh, right mindset uh, throughout the day. Uh, because praise and thanks go hand in hand. If we remember nothing else, from Psalm 118 and what we covered in the last 35 minutes. If you remember nothing else, we can always focus on his everlasting mercy and give thanks in doing so. Amen? Amen. And God says that's the kind of stuff that renews our mind. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time in your word. We are so grateful for Jesus. You, are be, you being the fulfillment of our mercy that we have received. And Lord, we pray that uh, our hearts, our souls will praise you, that we will extol you. We thank you that you are not just God, you certainly are, but you're our God, personally our God. And we thank you that you are good, and we thank you that your mercy endures forever, and it endures tonight and tomorrow and Friday and Saturday. And as long as you have us on this earth, we pray, Lord, that we would grow in the appreciation of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.